Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and if you've heard My Time Capsule before, then skip forward 15 seconds. But for those of you who haven't heard it, this is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they wish they had in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, and one thing they'd like to bury and forget – My guest in this episode, welcome back Skippers, is the actor and writer Jim Howick. Of course, if you know all about Jim, then skip forward about a minute. For everyone else, Jim, along with the five other members of Horrible Histories, which they all performed in, Ben Wilbond, Martha Howe Douglas, Matthew Bainton, Simon Farnaby and Lawrence Rickard, is the co-creator, writer and star of Yonderland, an eight-part family fantasy comedy series that premiered on Sky One in 2013. It was very good. He then co-starred with the same troupe in Bill, a BBC-produced comedy film based loosely around the early life of William Shakespeare. That's also brilliant. And Jim is probably best known as the co-creator, co-writer and co-star of the BBC One sitcom Ghosts, in which he mostly plays Patrick Butcher, or Pat Butcher, to make the EastEnders joke reference clearer. Pat is a 1980s scoutmaster who was killed in an archery accident. The show was first broadcast in 2019 and has just finished filming the fifth and final series, sadly. Jim's other prominent television roles include Gerard in Peep Show, Jerry in Danny Boyle's Babylon and Anthony in the revival of Reggie Perrin. In addition, he's been a regular guest star in various sketch comedies, including The Armstrong and Miller Show and The Kevin Bishop Show. On film, Jim played Corporal Matlin in the Guillermo del Toro adaptation of Hellboy. And on TV, he played Aaron Mayford in the ITV thriller Broadchurch. And since 2019, Jim has starred in the Netflix series Sex Education as Mr. Hendricks. More recently, Jim was in the BBC comedy series Here We Go, in which he plays Paul Jessup. And is also in the Channel 4 comedy The Change, written and starring our recent My Time Capsule guest, Bridget Christie. Wheels within wheels. So that's Jim's career. But let's hear the five things from his life that Jim Howick will choose to put in his time capsule. Here is the lovely Jim Howick. 
right now my brain's a bit scrambled what with it being a full-on shoot and also the emotional ending of the show yeah must have been amazing yeah, I, I think I'm only just getting around to the idea that it's not. I'm not in that loop anymore, and uh, I think I was in shock when it when we wrapped because everyone else, well, certainly Martha and Matt uh, and Lolly, got quite upset, and I, mm-hmm. I thought to myself, "Gosh, am I some sort of sociopath? It hasn't. Maybe it hasn't hit me yet, or maybe I'm over it already. Maybe I've checked out." Yeah, no, but I doubt that very much. I think that you can develop the skill. And, and I've done it over the years. I remember when I first started, when anything ended, I was bereft. Yeah. For weeks afterwards, I would be depressed. I would be fed up. I would be keep you. I think if you keep ringing people up and saying, hello, should we have a coffee? Because you can't let it go. It's been so lovely. Yeah. Uh, whereas this, doing ghosts, must be, that's that a thousand times, you know. But you can develop the skill, I think, to go, well, do you know what? This is the life I chose. Yeah. But of course, you haven't said goodbye because you're not going to stop as a team, are you? No, no, not at all. And that's the privilege, I think, of of being able to decide when to stop. Mm. It's a a privilege to be able to bookend your show. Mm. I think it's fair to say most people probably when they write a show or have a they have a certain length in mind, what they the sort of dream, I suppose five series is a dream. Yeah. But we were thinking about an end or means to an end after we finished the first series, really, because that's what you want to do. You want to try and bookend uh, your show and and not, you know, if if you're lucky enough that it doesn't get cut. Yeah. And, of course, the joy of watching a thing like that is you can see, if you've made those decisions early on, is that when you look back at it, you can see the seeds planted. Yes, absolutely, yeah. Which is a joy, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Total joy. Mm. I'm sitting, by the way, this is my office. I'm not in a cupboard, but I'm sitting around this way because, uh, there you go, here we are. Light. Light, yes. Light. The light shines in right onto the camera. Yeah, yeah. So, but it looks like I'm in a broom cupboard. Um, <laughs> really not. Whereas I look like I'm in, in my display cabinet, basically. God, yeah, you've got a, a record. What's the, the disc? I've got up? a gold disc on the wall. That's oh, a bit, that's God. an unusual thing, isn't that's it? amazing. It's from way, way back. Everything in my life is way, way back, Jim. Oh, no. Well, you know, hey, look what happens to all of us, mate. <laughs> it's true. Apart from appearing in Ghosts, which everybody oh, was so um, excited about. Oh, everybody. you were fantastic! Thank you so much for doing that. Like it was a, it was an absolute no. Like, it was just. I mean, I can't even believe we taped you as soon as we saw you. It was like, oh, this feels like we were all a bit embarrassed, really. <laughs> Uh, thank you. Don't, thank don't, you. don't even suggest so it. Because, to have you. Well, I'm, I, you know, I'm thrilled to get you. I'm thrilled you've agreed to do it now because actually, I just noticed that Ben yeah. is just about to do Richard Herring, which is the one you know. Everybody goes, oh God, no, Richard Herring's got them. That's it. Oh right, yes. You know. Well, we've actually done Richard Herring, Matt and I. Mm. Uh, so will they be as funny? That's the question. Well, <laughs> it's uh, it's a different sort of conversation. Richard yeah. likes to sort of deviate into the abs- like slightly obscure. Uh, <laughs> what, things about his career? From time <laughs> to time. Yeah. yeah that's no, no, it was very fun. Just yeah. something in front of an audience. And in front of an audience, yeah, indeed. Yeah. I'm doing one of these in front of, I'm doing Dave Gorman in about three weeks' time oh, at a, at a, at a oh, festival. Oh, right, fantastic. Wow. And I did a festival, the Ink Festival up in Suffolk, and I did it with David Morrissey. And, I, you know, I was quite nervous because he's a, a fantastic actor. Yeah. You think I've not done it in front of an audience, so I've got to try and 
work it all out and at the same time, you know, just have a conversation, but also sound as if I know what I'm doing. Yes. Uh, and I said to him, so, David, you know, you're going to put things in a time capsule. What's your first thing? And he went, well, my first thing. And off he went. And at the end of it, I said, thank you very much, David. He, he sort of did the five things. He said, so that brings me on to my second thing, you know, which is... Uh, oh, right. <laughs> I just, I just, no, this is a monologue. It was a monologue, yeah. So what do you do? Do you sort of edit that and interject? <laughs> like, yes, obviously, I put in me telling witty stories. in the middle yeah. Of it. Yeah, yeah. He's a lovely man. I met him actually on my way into the BAFTAs last Sunday. Ah. Yeah, very nice man. Very nice man. Yeah. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. So there we are. So, yeah, I'll see what happens. But I do like this situation. I like, I, I find Zoom quite intimate. I find it quite nice, this thing of just face to face like this. Yeah. We wouldn't really sit in a room, would we, and just stare at each other? It would be weird. No, that's, 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 that's true. I think it's an interesting thing, Zoom. I think it, it sort of works out if you have a sort of level of attention sort of disorder. We wrote a whole series of ghosts on Zoom during lockdown. And I would sort of sketch whilst we came up with ideas and sort of, you know, spitballed mm. ideas for the, for the show. And, and I found it sort of that helped me sort of focus more than in the room. Obviously, it's more, it's kind of joyless mm. not with the others. Yeah. But I don't mind it. I don't mind it at all. No. All right. Well, I'm not going to chat too much because otherwise you'll never get a chance to do your thing. So we're going to talk, I hope, about the things that you've chosen to put into a time capsule, Jim. Yes. Yes. Mm. And it's been an interesting sort of couple of weeks thinking about this because there is so much more that I could put into this time capsule. And I feel like I should sort of make a disclaimer that that there will probably be a hundred more photographs, <laughs> a number of different albums, mm-hmm. and certainly some Tottenham Hotspur memorabilia. <laughs> I'm a Spurs fan, I'm a season ticket holder, and I've got a number of sort of precious Tottenham Hotspur memories and artefacts, programs and scarves and things. Mm. But they didn't make the cut, Mike, because I don't think they're the best conversational pieces. Right. My grandson is a Tottenham fan. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. Which came entirely from the fact that he got to just the age or the awareness about football that he felt he ought to pick a team just as Pochettino took them to the final of the European Cup. Well, went, that's as good a place as any. That'll do for me, he said. Yeah, absolutely. And they've lost ever since. That was quite a moment. We haven't, we haven't really built upon that glory. Uh, and that's the problem at the moment, Mike. We're sort of resetting. But resetting, we don't yeah. talk about that. That's we don't want to talk about that. That's why I didn't put any of that in the time capsule, Mike. <laughs> no, just be depressing. I just want to depress myself. Um, <laughs> so I guess we'll start with number one, right? Yeah, yeah. What do you got for me? So my first item is a photo which I'm holding up now to the camera. Oh, right. You can see there's uh, me there. Is that you there? That's me Are there. you the Three Musketeers? We are. We're the Three Musketeers. Mm. Uh, for the purposes of those listening, these two were my neighbours. Uh, they were brothers, Michael and John. Mm. And my sister's six years older than me, so I was essentially an only child. Obviously, I got on very well with my sister, and we're very close. But... She was a bit too old for me to play with and mm-hmm. be a sibling in that sort of conventional sense. Yeah. So I used to go around to their house and play with them almost every day after school and certainly most days in the holidays. So the night before this picture was taken, the Three Musketeers, the 1973 version with right. Christopher Lee and uh, 
who else is in there? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Oliver Reed. Oliver Reed, of course. Oliver mm. Reed and Frank Finlay, is it? Frank Finlay's in it as well. Frank Finlay, yes. Uh, Frank Finlay, yeah. Uh, but it also has um, Rory Kinnear's dad. Roy Kinnear's dad. Roy Kinnear, good old Roy Kinnear, a hero. Fabulous, yeah. But I'd never seen it before, and I sat and watched it on a, I think it was a Saturday night, mm. and I couldn't believe it. It was just my cup of tea. It was swashbuckling. It was, it was, there was comedy, there was sword fights and everything else. And it really appealed to me. And the next day, I got together with Mike and John. They'd watched it as well. And we decided to don uh, bin liners. Find <laughs> whatever hats we could, mm-hmm. Mike. Yours is impressive, I have to say. So mine is a, mine is a sort of cowboy hat turned on its side. Ah, see, yeah, it, it could pass for one. Yeah, I think I took it a little. Yeah, that's an early sign there, Jim. That's all I'm Absolutely, saying. Absolutely, yeah. And then we went to my mum's, and she put us put little moustaches on us and little beards. <laughs> Brilliant. And we played in the garden all day. And then Mike and John's dad took a picture of us. And I remember the picture being taken. I was having such a fun day. And then for my 40th birthday, I didn't realise, um, I'd, I'd, I'd completely forgotten about the actual picture itself. Mm. And then Mike gave me uh, the picture for my 40th birthday uh. and popped in a copy of The Three Musketeers, the book. And, uh, and I absolutely love it. And I treasure mm. it now. And I, I was listening to Simon Pegg's Desert Island Disc the other day. Yeah. He mentioned how whenever he's in a sort of difficult situation filming, and first I should just say that we are extremely privileged to do the job we do, Mm. but there are times, like anyone else in any job, where you can get a a bit grumpy and a bit tired and a bit morose about what you're doing. Um, (laughs) If you have me picked up at half past four in the morning. Where is my car? Where's my car? (laughs) (laughs) Is it the right car? I ordered lunch ages ago. I can't believe it. And then you get to you get to work and you're given breakfast and um, <laughs> you have to wear like don sort of chain mail or some some uncomfortable costume and mm. or I mean more specifically probably to the point it's a stunt or something you have to do physically that mm. you've been thinking about you've been worrying about how they're going to shoot it just how long you're going to have to spend doing this stunt and how do you sort of motivate yourself to do that and sort of take away the fear? And I feel like that looking at this picture is such a great way to deal with any sort of apprehension that it might bring. Because if I put myself in my childhood shoes, mm-hmm. looking at what I'm doing, then it's an absolute dream what I'm doing. Yeah, To be able to jump out of a cart onto a crash mat or to do anything like that. <laughs> Reasonably dangerous to us. But I look at this picture and I think, wow, he would have just done that. He would have jumped into a ditch and done a forward roll. And, and, yeah. and the idea of being paid to do that <laughs> it would have been an absolute. Or the idea that you might get a bit moany while you're doing it. What? What's wrong yeah, with that? Yeah, well, absolutely. The idea that you might become jaded yeah. doing the one thing you've always wanted to do is probably a, a very true, real human element. Mm-hmm. I think it's in all of us to forget the grand scheme of things. And that's a very good reset, isn't it? But yeah. I would ask you, in all those extraordinary things that you had to wear for uh, horrible histories, and I know you must have been through thousands of costumes, did you ever get to dress as one of the Three Musketeers? No. Oh. I never played one of the Three Musketeers. No. Well, I got close to it, I think. I mean, I, got, I played um, a cavalier. 
Ah, well, there we are, yeah. So I guess that's the closest. That's the sort of British version of a, of a musketeer, yeah, a cavalier. So, so, and also uh, you're talking about your young self. In a way, you've got to play more than almost any other actor does. Most actors, they sort of fit a role and they tend to do that role. Quite often that role involves them wearing a suit or pretending to be a policeman. Yeah. I've been a very good vicar many times in my career, uh, which is fine. I don't mind wearing a dog collar, but I really wish that I'd suited he's a really good punk or he's, yeah. he's, a, he's a really nasty villain, you know, he's good at playing convicts. I'd just love to have been one of those sort of people. And you've been right through the whole gamut. That's true. I think that's mm. absolutely true. And I think that is a product of me doing sketch shows for the first six, seven years of my life. Yeah. Sketch shows sort of present themselves as a variety show, essentially. So mm-hmm. You're, when you sign up to one, you kind of you, know, you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Certainly, from a costume and makeup point of view, Horrible no. Histories um, was quite extraordinary. So we would film. There was twelve episodes a series, and we would film that series over the space. You would film a normal series, so that's six episodes. So yes, yeah. yeah, so two episodes a week. <laughs> And that was seven looks a day. So you were running between makeup and set. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, credit to the costume supervisors and standbys and the, and the makeup artists, because really we spent all our time with them mm. and probably only sort of 10 minutes filming a sketch, each sketch. Yeah. But I feel incredibly blessed to have been able to play so many parts. And, and I think that's down to the good old sketch show. Mm. I did a lot of sketches when I was young, so I did loads of different parts. And now I seem to have sort of, you hit a track where people say, well, that's what you're good at. And in a way they disappear. When I used to do voiceovers, I used to do voiceovers in different voices. Now I do voiceovers dark brown and lovely, and I do that voice. (laughs) But but, uh, so in a way it sort of faded away slightly, that thing of playing lots of parts. And occasionally when people say, can you do an accent? Can you do this? I say, yeah. They go, oh, I didn't know you could do accents. Yes. Oh, you can do loads though, right, Mike? You can do do tons. Well, yeah, I think I can. (laughs) Lots of different characters and lots of different voices and places, but you don't get asked to do it as you get older, I think. So I would say indulge yourself with it now and enjoy it. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I don't know if the sketch show is 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 dead nowadays. I, I hope not. They're always saying it is, but I'm sure it will never die. I've, I've caught the last sort of twilight of the sketch show. But I mean, there is the feeling, I think, that we would we were dressing up. We, we looked absolutely fantastic, but mm. there wasn't any sort of solid sort of complete narrative about the way we looked and the way we we, we sounded and and, and and were dressed. Part of the joy of it, I thought. Well, maybe, but but we you know I do consider myself incredibly fortunate to to have, have caught the sort of the last days of sketch. Mm. And then of course, you know, with the group we we work as a sort of multi-character sort of Python-esque sort of format. For, mm. for, certainly for Yonderland we did. And we tried to do it for ghosts, but that didn't work. So even with a narrative that sort of gives us a special sort of license to be able to dress up as as many different characters as possible. Yeah. My favourite is Bill. I still think that film oh, is it's just really beautiful film. Thank you. I find it really moving, actually. I think it's really, really lovely. You all play it so well. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's a fabulous script. Ben and Larry wrote an amazing script for yeah, that. Yeah. And uh, it was an absolute pleasure filming that film. Yeah, I bet. And also with the sort of peripheral cast as well. They were, mm. Jamie Petrie uh, was up there with us and, and David Crow and some mm-hmm. excellent performers. Yeah. And of course, um, Damien Lewis. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah. <laughs> Amazing. So you're still friends with your neighbours now, if they gave you this present on your 40th, is that right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. Mm. They're my oldest friends. How lovely. We all grew up in Bognor Regis, and now one of them still lives in Bognor, John, and Mike lives just outside Reading. But um, we still meet up as much as we can. Great. And, you know, don bin liners and <laughs> moustache and, and run around the garden with wooden swords. I hope that whenever you meet, you all shout, all for one. Yeah. <laughs> and one yeah. for all. We actually suited the characters as well. So I was Porthos, sort of mm. the gregarious, kind of overnourished, like Falstaffian character. And Mike was a very sensitive sort of kid. So he was obviously Aramis. And John <laughs> was the oldest. So he qualified as Athos. Brilliant. Bruiser. Yeah. <laughs> and you, all you were doing was looking for a D'Artagnan in your life. Yeah. But he never came. But that's okay. That's all right. D'Artagnan sort of ruined it a bit. This every- is pre the book. Exactly. They start to babysit with D'Artagnan. Yeah. <laughs> and you would have ended up having to do the, the Four Musketeers, which was the follow up to the film, The Three Musketeers, I that's think. Right. And it, it was nowhere near as good, even though it has no. Mike Milligan in it. That's right. Mm. Uh, yeah. Happy days. Happy and days. So a very useful tool just to. Mm. Yeah, to put things into perspective. Yeah. Very good. Lovely. Okay, we'll put that gorgeous photograph into the time capsule. It's your first thing, Jim. So what's your second item? Well, my second item is an excellent conversation piece, I think. I think you'll (laughs) like this, Mike. So it was bought for me uh, for my, I think it was my seventh birthday. And at the time, I thought it was possibly the funniest thing I'd ever heard. (laughs) It is, of course, the chicken song. Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And this is it. This is my... There it is. ...single. So I collect vinyl. Uh, I don't have an enormous collection because Mm. it's quite an inconvenient format. Obviously, because you have no taste, I think. (laughs) Um, But, yes, this was bought for me for my seventh birthday, and I just thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. (laughs) And it wasn't until reasonably recently that I realised that, in fact, you are the lead singer in the, on the uh, song. Well, did you not? No, of course, we're not credited. No. It would be the, no, the right. Spitting Image Singers or whatever. Yeah. I don't think there are ever any credits on there. Are they written by, I would you say? composed by and produced by Philip Pope, mm-hmm. who I know because... Philip did the original music for Yonderland. Yeah. So um, I know Philip very well and couldn't believe that I was working with the <laughs> Philip Pope at the time. And here I am chatting to the, the man who gave me so much joy when I was seven years old. But you know how these things work, Jim. It was one of those strange coincidences, really, or just a piece of serendipity. We all went into the studio together, and Philip basically said, it's a bit of a sort of a black lace parody, he said. Yeah. Can you do a Manchester accent, Mike? And I said, yeah. He said, yeah, because we don't want one of the good singers to do it. And he's, <laughs> he's talking about people like Lance Ellington and uh, Tessa Niles, who she was the main backing singer for David Bowie, amazing yeah. singer. And Lance Ellington still sings on Strictly Come Dancing, and he's got this amazing, incredible voice. So I was picked because I wasn't the best singer. And we'd recorded, strangely enough, Phil and I had recorded the gold disc that you see behind me, that album, we'd recorded that in Stockport. So basically he said it's just like the bloke who was the engineer for that. We had a bloke called just, okay, rolling. Yeah. He just said, okay, rolling, everybody, here we go. Yeah. So I did that. 
And so uh, the gold disc I can see behind you, Mike, that's for this song. It's not for this song, no. It's for a thing we did before. Phil and I were in a group called the Heebie Jeebies together, which was oh, a. Oh, yes. We did yes. musical parodies. So that's sort of what led to Spitting Image in a way. Right. That's why I ended up singing on nearly everything. You know, I sang lots of backing vocals for stuff, but this was one of the few times that and a song called The Condom Song. Right. I sang the lead vocals on. Okay. Yeah. Well, yes. I mean, I first heard this song. On the radio, I think I was coming back from a trip to my grandmother's who lives sort of in East Sussex somewhere. Uh, well, I know where, Grafham. <laughs> and uh, on a Sunday, we'd listen to the sort of charts and I couldn't I could, couldn't contain myself. It was the funniest thing I'd ever heard in my life. And it was the silliest thing I'd ever heard. And I <laughs> really, I didn't really care that it, I didn't understand that it was sort of a satire of some kind or it no. was a, and you were aping Black Lace and Agadoo and, and these songs. Uh, in fact, I genuinely loved Agadoo at the time. Mm. But it was just so funny and so silly. And I, what I couldn't believe was that it was adults being funny and silly. Ah. So I don't know if it, I was aware of this at the time, but it sort of shined a light. It sort of gave me hope that I could grow up and not have to remain sensible all the time mm. and and because there were people doing it there were people you know this is the, their jobs was to was to to, to write silly songs like this <laughs> i just couldn't believe how funny it was oh my word you have no idea the effect of these things for you because i mean we did it as a song for spitting image and like all the songs you think it's going to go out once and spitting image is not a program that was repeated because it was topical so yeah. it would just go out the once and that's it and so you assume that that's it I was away on holiday when this came out, so you probably heard it before me. Wow. And then when we were asked to go and sing it somewhere, I said, well, has anybody got the lyrics? Because I don't, I don't, I only sang it three times. Incredible. You know? How lovely that that sort of gave you that clue that in fact you can be silly because so many children are, are told to be sensible, yes. grow up. Yes, absolutely. No, it was a beacon, really. Mm. I didn't, I didn't realise that, uh, you know, that, that for me, that, that made it funnier. The fact that here were clearly adults talking about putting debt chairs up the nose and salami in their ears. And it really appealed to me. It was the first time I think that I sort of decided in my tiny sort of child brain that this is what appealed to me the most. Mm. And I remember finding it funnier. Everyone found it funny, but I remember finding it the fun, like it was the funniest thing in the world. And I think people complained because <laughs> I had it on repeat the, the whole time. Mm -hmm. And my family, and sort of friends at school were like, yeah, I mean, it's funny, you know, it's good. But, you know, all right. <laughs> Again. But it presented, I think kids love a challenge, don't they? And, and when I was a kid growing up, you know, learning songs from adverts, adverts were really long in, when I grew up, you know, mm. there was a lot of money spent on advertising. <laughs> so you'd learn sort of songs from adverts or raps uh, in the chart and the vanilla ice and things like that later on. And then you go and repeat them at school, any sort of challenge, lyrical challenge. And uh, this was certainly one of them. And probably the first where if you knew the chicken song, if you knew all verses of the chicken song, then you were all right by me. <laughs> so that would certainly go into my my time capsule. Wow. Devastated if anything would happen to it. I mean, it's, it's a bit rough around the edges, as you can see. Yeah, there. well, that shows it's been played. Oh, it's been played and played. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. 
I had to relearn the lyrics recently because we did a sort of a, well, Philip and I did an appearance together to do with Only Fools and Horses, actually, because we were both also in that. Different episodes, but somebody said, would you come and do it? And they also said, actually, we could get you to sing the chicken song. And Phil said, do you remember it? And I said, no. So we both had to sit down and learn the lyrics. And that was for Only Fools and Horses, was it? Yeah, uh, we were both in an episode of Only Fools and Horses, so it was it was a, a sort of a, a convention. Right. See, well, of course, you know, I, I, I love your episode of Only Fools and Horses. It's one of my favourites. <laughs> um, and Philip, does Philip play the um, the magician? Right? Is he? No, he plays magi- Tony Angelino. Tony Angelino. That's right. Quying. Yeah, quying. Quying. Of course. I know. <laughs> we were very lucky, weren't we? Amazing. It was lovely fun doing Spitting Image, I have to say. I really enjoyed it. You know, every week you'd go in and you'd have a one, maybe two songs yeah. to record. And did you ever get to meet uh, Steve Connolly, who I believe was one of the directors on Spitting Image? Uh, yeah, I did. Well, it was John Lloyd produced it originally, and then Jeffrey Perkins took over from him. Yes. And and they're just releasing the Al Murray and Matt Ford have just done a show for London. That's right. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I only found this out the other day, and I was rather annoyed that I found it out in the afternoon because somebody tweeted me about it last week i went on this morning yes yes to publicize something so i had a conversation with philip schofield and holly willoughby yes and it turns out it was just about the last one they ever did together wow i know it wasn't you mike it could have been me but the the thing that annoys me is that i found out just afterwards when they were saying so you know anything else happening in your lives they said and i could have said to them well today is the 31st anniversary of the release of the chicken song. That was last week. Was it really? 31 years ago, yeah. Yeah. Well, that makes sense because my birthday is the 14th of May. There you are. So, yeah, that would have been right. Yeah. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, you've you've slightly bowled me over with that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> uh, well, I'm pleased about that because I, I thought to myself, because I was looking through my record collection and there's a number of albums that mean a lot to me. And I should I should perhaps mention um, a Hall & Oates album called Abandoned Luncheonette, which my wife oh. and I, that's, that's our, both our favourite album, our joint favourite album. Mm, it's a great album. And sort of have a sort of living room disco too. So, yes, <laughs> I, the Chicken Song has a very, very special place in my heart <laughs> or in my nose or in my ear. <laughs> and I hope that every morning you wake up and you paint your left knee green. Oh, and extract my wisdom teeth. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Jim, let's put that in as the second thing, then the chicken song sung by, I can't remember. Uh, And let's move on to number three. Sorry to interrupt, but it's time for us to take a short ad break. Do stay with us. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? 
Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Welcome back. Thanks for hanging around or skipping forward, whichever you've done. If you'd like to hear this podcast without ads, then do subscribe to Acast Plus, although it's a bit late telling you now, just after the ads. Yeah. So I'll waste no more of your time and get back to Jim Howick. So number three is a recipe. It is my uh, late grandmother's bread pudding recipe. Oh, which you have. Which I have, yes. In her hand? In her hand. Wow. So my grandmother, she passed away a couple of years ago, and she was a very important person in my life. She was the matriarch of the family and could be difficult to others, but was never really difficult to me. I was clearly her favourite, and it was kind of a joke in the family. And her bread pudding was... Kind of the talk of the of the of the town, I should say town, <laughs> parish is the right word, village. Um, <laughs> they come from a sort of small area just outside Bognor Regis, and but her bread pudding wasn't just a delicious pudding; it was a, it was her currency. So she would use it to pay for <laughs> hair, haircuts <laughs> and um, to sort of grease the doctors, so she could sort of get up the waiting list. And, <laughs> Like she would use it as a sort of um, like a, some sort of black market currency. And there was so much of this stuff in all of our relatives sort of freezers and fridges and, and, and pantries. And, and, mm. and not just that, but everywhere she went, she would sort of give the butcher bread pudding for exchange <laughs> sort of like a couple of sort of smoked haddock or something like yeah. But I mean, what she probably didn't realise was that she was spending more money on ingredients than she needed to. <laughs> but it's just a special thing, and it's and it was absolutely delicious. And my wife uh, one day asked for the recipe, and she had to really sort of sit and think about it because she no one had ever asked her for the recipe before. And I don't yeah. know if she was kind of <laughs> ring fencing her recipe, and, <laughs> but I think she thought at the time because she was approaching her nineties at the time that here was an opportunity for it to live on. And so she wrote it down on just a sort of a pen with a biro and there's, and there's parts of it that's, that, that are crossed out. Like she hasn't, she put too many eggs and she's crossed that out and mm. the wrong type of sugar and she's crossed that. So, so it's very, it's a very human document. Yeah. Our fridge is a sort of collage of pictures and, and, and fridge magnets and bits and bobs, like everyone's fridge, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it was on our fridge for a while. And after she after she left us, we decided to have it framed in a sort of special glass that won't won't sort of soak in any sort of UV and and, and fade the the note. Mm-hmm. And we had it framed, and it's been in our kitchen ever since. And it, for me, it's almost better than a picture. We've got loads of pictures of her, obviously, in the house, but it, it's a sort of living, breathing. What's the word? It feels like sort of alchemy to bring her back somehow and i think that's such an important thing with with recipes and skills particularly Mm. sort of cooking or preserving skills my other grandmother who died in 2003 a long time ago now but she Mm. used to make her own pickled onions and they were uh those sort of again they were famed sort of throughout the family and beyond 
and they were so delicious. And when she died, she had jars and jars of these pickled onions in the house and in the garage. And we sort of separated them, <laughs> sort of divided <laughs> up like almost like a second, a, a pickled onion wheel, and divided these uh, <laughs> jars of pickled onions. And I remember the Boxing Day, I think it was probably, you know, five years later that we opened the very last jar of these pickled onions. And, and you know, because it's a sort of preservation technique and we never thought to ask her, it's gone. And we yeah. can try and replicate the flavour and everything else and, and we absolutely can't. So it just feels like part of her went with that last jar of pickled onions. So mm. I'm so pleased I have this. And I um, I try and make it sort of a few times a year. It's quite a big. the The recipe she's written out is for quite a big batch. So I'm trying <laughs> to look look at my, look after my weight. So uh, <laughs> yeah, but I'm just so pleased I have this. It feels like a sort of living, breathing sort of part of her. Mm. And is it very straightforward? Is it absolutely white sliced bread? I can read it out for the listeners. Do ingredients: one pound of white bread one pound of mixed fruit, one pint of milk, or half a container of mixed spice, five ounces of dark brown sugar, two large eggs, a quarter of a pound of butter, demerara sugar. And here's the method. Mix bread, cut into small pieces. Mix spice, dark brown sugar, one pint of milk, mixed fruit, two large eggs, mix together. Melt a quarter of butter, then put in an oven dish, sprinkle demerara sugar, then put in an oven and cook between five and six, gas mark, mm-hmm. for an hour and a half. There you go. We've all got that. We can all try that now. My grandmother's uh, bread pudding for the world. Fantastic. And do you like to let it go a bit crispy around the edges? Yeah, a bit crispy. And then I like to let it go cold. Mm. So it's not like a bread pudding like um, you would have with custard, like a sort of standard sort of bread, but it's more of a, it's like a cakey recipe. Yeah, absolutely. There's an absolute divide, I think, between the people who think of bread pudding as slices of bread, the sort of thing you'd get in a, if you went to a pub. Yes, yeah. Uh, that's one form of bread pudding. The other is absolutely that thing that you, it goes cold, you slice it up, and it's quite spongy, isn't that's it? That's right, yeah. It's dark and mm. it's, it's, it's sort of sumptuous on its own. Mm. There's a lot of fruit in it it's probably quite heavy sort of thing you'd eat before a marathon rather than sort of <laughs> sitting down to watch where eagles dare or something like that um so you know <laughs> it's probably best had sparingly but uh, for me it's uh, a way of uh, i guess keeping her sort of 3d almost you know mm. Isn't that lovely? My mother made bread pudding yeah. as well, exactly like that. Yes. And I think it comes from that generation that would have seen it as almost a sin to let things go to waste. So oh. if you've got stale bread. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. No, I, I think that it's a thrifty thing. Mm-hmm. It comes from um, the war and, and post-war. Mm. And uh, and that was absolutely her generation. She was born in 1927. So, she, yeah, she would have been sort of 15, I think 16, something like that, when the war started, certainly during the war. Yeah, same age as my mother. Yeah, so she would have learned that then. And, and, and yeah, and she carried it on. And, and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, the whole town misses it, I'm sure. And mm. her pie and mash, I might add as well. She was from, uh, originally she was from Hoxton. So sort of in the, in the pie and mash heartland. With what they called liquor on it. That's right, yeah, parsley sauce. Mm. But yeah, so she was a fantastic woman. And she was from uh, sort of a real sort of old East End place. And uh, mm. and when I say that, I mean, she could in a, a time, be pretty earthy pretty earthy woman and and sort of taught me a lot of songs that perhaps i shouldn't have been singing at seven years old 
but full of mischief and i miss her loads we all do yeah yeah 15 when the war started so uh did she join the land army or did she uh well so, so she was actually she should have been 12 when the war started 12 so That's yeah right. She was evacuated, actually. She was evacuated to Somerset. Mm-hmm. And I don't think she had a very good time there. She, it was probably quite a difficult age to be away from your family. Mm-hmm. And she was also in charge. She had a number of, sort of younger siblings. So she was uh, in Somerset. And I think she, I seem to remember her saying to me that she, she, she called her dad, or she wrote to her dad and said, I'm saving up. I'm going to use my money to buy a train ticket if you don't come and get me. <laughs> mm. So he was like, oh, okay. I mean, it was a difficult decision because they were in, at the time they'd moved from Hoxton to Islington, but it's mm. very dangerous. Right by the docks. Yeah. Yeah. Right by the docks and, and London and Clerkenwell and Hoban and all that were those places were being bombed every night for a time and, and mm. that's just around the corner. So, I mean, I can't imagine how terrifying that must've been no. just a, an incredible lady. Incredible lady. Miss her a lot. Lovely. And she also knitted for the stars, I might add. She also knitted. She knitted, um, when I was doing Armstrong and Miller, she uh, kitted out uh, Xander Armstrong's entire family (laughs) 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 with cardigans. Yeah, It's fantastic, isn't it, that skill? Yeah. My mother was the same. She could knit fantastically well. I, I just think there's a generation that had no choice but to develop an incredible aptitude for this sort of craft. Mm. And I admire it greatly. Yeah. And she was certainly one of them. And now we have it here at our disposal. We can make it and it brings her back a little bit. And so does the world. Yeah. There we are, Jim. Is there any time anybody wants to make that? There it is. Oh, fantastic. All right. That's the third thing for the time capsule. So we've got two left. Got two left. One you want to keep and one you want to chuck away. So my last one, my last mm. one, um, it might be a bit controversial certainly with uh, my good friend, my dear friend and uh, colleague, Mr. Matt Bainton, because Mm. I'm going to steal his idea, which wouldn't be the first time. Um, (laughs) Think about Matt is that he is, I admire his opinion greatly and he's very often right about things. And he was certainly right about this time capsule uh, deposit, Mm. which is our bloopers. So I'm going to take that idea because I just I just can't get away from the fact that it is such an important essence of what we do. It really is the sort of beginnings. And if I look, if I think back to that picture of us as the Musketeers, and and I look at the bloopers, then that really is the foundation of of why we want to do what we do. It's the fun. It's the it's the off-script japes. Um, hmm. It's the camaraderie when, and the bonding when you're having a particularly difficult day, or the, you know the, the hours are long, or you're cold, or you're wet, or you know if you're uncomfortable in any way. And it comes way, way before any kind of consideration about craft. And I think that I, I owe it to the group. Really, there's so much I owe to the group, the six, hmm. the, the other five, I should say. I think that their sort of individual strengths have given me an opportunity to, it, I suppose, indulge myself a little bit. And also their sort of uh, trust in me as, as a writer, as a sort of new writer, has um, essentially given me sort of credit, really. Mm. It's hard to sort of sum up just how important they are to me, but um, they really are. And I couldn't, I couldn't not leave a trace of them in my time capsule. 
No. It's an extraordinary piece of serendipity, isn't it, that you all came together at that audition, as it were. It's incredible. And Amazing. We, we knew each other. Simon and I knew each other. We'd done our very first TV show together, our very first TV appearance together in a, in a comedy lab for Channel 4 called Captain V. And Ben and I knew each other from before then. So when I was in a sketch group at drama school, Ben was in a sketch group with Arne Widdison, and they just won the Perrier, Ben and Arne. And we sort of supported them. Our sketch group supported them. And and that's how I sort of got involved in fringe comedy and subsequently comedy itself and TV Mm. comedy. So I owe an awful lot to Ben and Simon. I mean, all of them, really. You know, I met Matt uh, on set and Martha and Larry. We met on Horrible Histories. And we've seemed to have a really good dynamic there's a there's a really good work ethic between us a real democracy and i i i, I don't know what i'd do without them really mm. it's interesting you should mention the work ethic because you do all put an enormous amount of work into what you do yeah. both in the in the preparation for performing it and in the writing of it and yet my observation watching you work i thought that you were the most egalitarian group i've ever worked with the fact that you all seem to be willing to come and watch each other do scenes when you weren't in them mm. because also you're giving them the license through your laughter is that the writing carries on you continue to create even on set so you may have taken an enormous amount of care over what the words are and the order of them, and yet you give each other the license to break that up. It's an amazing thing. Yes, it is. It's it's. Uh, I think it, it's a matter of confidence and trust. We we have our moments, like any kind of family and any kind of group. There are moments where certainly as matters of taste mm-hmm. and control and passiveness and apathy, and and there's all of these sort of. Um, the, the, the dynamics that would upset sort of most families but in the grand scheme of things they're actually quite trivial and commonplace and we mm. know that so we all have our strengths and we know our strengths and more importantly we probably know each other's vulnerabilities and, and weaknesses as well and I think that is key because it, it means you don't stigmatize the mistakes mm-hmm. you encourage them and I think that as you say, we, we what we didn't have a chance to do on Horrible Histories in Yonderland was to watch each other perform because the schedule was such that we would be in makeup at the, at the time when someone else was doing it and it was just mm-hmm. a pragmatic way of working it all out. But with Ghosts, because we only play sort of principal characters, we're able to go on to set and watch each other perform. And it's not from a sort of, from, for wanting a sort of tight grip on things or the need to sort of direct each other in a way. No. It's more really to hearten each other. I, I thought it was entirely to do with encouragement. Yeah, I think it is that. And, and I think if things, you know, often with, when you film, as you know, you, you're doing the same joke like five or six times with five or six different setups. Mm. And I think it's a really good way of invigorating the scene. And I think that's really what bloopers are about. I think that bloopers can be seen as <laughs> this is me trying to defend myself <laughs> defending the number of times you've gone wrong yeah yes. <laughs> yeah but i think bloopers are a way of invigorating the scene rather than just mucking about and it certainly you know it, <laughs> how can i explain this <laughs> when you delve deep enough that's what it's really about i think because mm. when you when you look at horrible histories often the best scenes we did in horrible histories were the ones that 
we were either so rushed that we couldn't sort of learn it properly. We could only sort of get the dates out. And, you know, sometimes it was impossible to learn sort of two handers, Mm. so much material. So you had to approach it with a sort of anarchic perspective, a a punky point of view. Mm. That, I think, really made the show in the end. That really became the tone of the show, the cemented tone of the show, was from the perspective of the naughty kid in class. But I think also the reason why you have such a devoted following for Ghosts, and it's a beautiful programme, not just funny, but beautiful. You should be very, very proud of it. I'm sure you are. But one of the reasons I think that the following is so devoted is because you've brought them with you. They've come from being children watching you do horrible histories and have come through. They're now adults. So they feel they know you. Yes, I think so. I think they've seen so much of us. (laughs) You know, certainly I could could be in any number of guises and I'd be recognised because of Mm. um, just the amount of parts I played in horrible histories. But but (laughs) I agree completely. And it it all comes back to adults being silly. It all sort of comes back to the chicken song. (laughs) You know, here are a bunch of... 20 somethings mucking around and giving a sort of performing with a certain sort of enthusiasm and exuberance that sort of encourages well what we did with horrible histories is we encourage learning through fun and i think mm. it's a really valuable lesson but the yeah. papers i think are us at our purest we've never really stopped trying to make each other laugh and no. we will always remain our first sort of audience. Yes, you've never lost the exuberance of youth, which I think is fabulous. Yeah, I think that's such an important thing. The bloopers sort of provide a, what's the word, like an aqua vitae, mm. a fountain of youth. And as Matt said in his time capsule episode, the idea of them being wiped away forever would just be absolutely devastating. It, I would feel like part of my life is, is, is gone mm. because, you know, that's the true essence of who we are right there, away from the script and having fun, looking like idiots. <laughs> How fantastic. Right, let's put those bloopers in then, Jim. Thank you. So we have the final thing which you're going to put in because you'd like to get rid of it. Yes. And as I was thinking about what I was going to do, this was definitely the hardest, and I imagine most of your guests say the same thing, this is the hardest thing it's one way or the other. Some people really? say, I had no trouble thinking of the thing I wanted to get rid of. It's the other things. Okay. Isn't that strange? I think, I'm not sure it's necessarily healthy to bury anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, whether it's bad art or from the past or regrets or behaviour or, you know, I feel like it's a negative thing to bury <laughs> frankly. But <laughs> for the purposes of the podcast... <laughs> I'm okay. not going to be a party people. I'm going to keep it light. So, um, so uh, yeah, I'm going to bury my uh, school reports because now that I'm an adult, I understand the frustration I must have caused most of my my teachers. <laughs> I wasn't a bad kid at all, I, and I was pretty uh, – I wasn't exceptionally bright, but my school reports all say the same thing, which is that he has plenty of potential if only he would sort of knuckle down and use that potential. And, mm. and it's just – I really sort of just used to apply myself when I when I wanted to. It was on my terms. And it was fine, and I got the grades and everything was okay, but I felt like I needed an audience, and uh, I was a classic <laughs> class clown. And the truth is, is I didn't really need that audience, to be honest. I just enjoyed the attention. 
So, you know, I look back at school reports and I think, well, these are useful. You know, I think you can learn from anything. You can learn from all this stuff. And yeah, one of my regrets, I think, the thing I would like to bury is perhaps my past behaviour in, in the classroom. Just being a bit too cheeky and just annoying teachers, really. Yeah, but the teachers are always saying, this child shows potentially, if only they'd knuckle down and do what I tell them to do. Yeah. And you sort of go, well, yeah, but you didn't let them show the other potential. I think they're wrong to say that. I think they're, they're trying to narrow you down. No, that's true. That's, that's true. And I think there was a TED talk some time ago about how children are sort of natural. They're born artists. And um, it's only sort of education that stops them from becoming, stops their creative potential. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, for example, you and the others in your crowd, one of the things that you have is that you've not lost that childlike ability to look at something and go, that's funny. Yes, I think we, we, yeah, we were all able to find the funny in any sort of nook and cranny in the script and often make a, a joke out of something, a sentence that wasn't a joke. Mm. I just feel like from an adult point of view, I can see myself being the most annoying child <laughs> and frustrating because I was a nice kid. I knew they liked me, but I was just a bit too disruptive. And sure, they probably weren't equipped with the best way to deal with me, probably in them days. But when I think back to those days, I think, oh, I probably should have just knuckled down. I kind of wish I did. Makes life easier, doesn't it, when you do? I was quite good at pretending I was knuckling down. So acting. um, Maybe that's what I was doing. The only person who ever spotted it was my English teacher who suggested that I should either become... He went around the classroom and told everybody what they should do for a living. And he came to me and he said, "Mm," he said, you should either be a journalist or an actor, because you're one of the best liars I've ever come across. Wow. Well, yeah. And that's acting, right? It's lying. Yeah. (laughs) yeah. It's more that I would, I feel like as an adult now, I would have looked at that child and thought, oh, God. It's ex- it is exasperating. That child is exasperating. And, and, and I kind of regret that. I sort of mm. cringe when I read them and think, oh, Jim. <laughs> because I don't think it would have changed who I became or who I am. I don't think, you know, I sort of honed my skills in the classroom. I just think I liked an easy laugh. And it's still true to this day, really. <laughs> but, hey, it's not a biggie. There were so many options i had this bad songwriting and there's bad sketches and everything else but i feel like you can learn so much from them that i wouldn't yeah. want to bury them i wouldn't want to sort of tuck them away no and I'd, i like something you almost suggested which is that you'd like to put in there the necessity to bury things and forget them yes so in other yeah. words we don't need to do that well maybe not there we are maybe we'll just bury that last idea yeah for the format of the show (laughs) Um, because it's probably not a good idea to bury anything really no you know people pay a lot of money to to dig things up so uh... (laughs) yep well i'm not going to tell them where your time capsule is so you'll be safe great thanks lovely jim it's really good of you to give me your time because i know how in demand you are and how busy you are so uh, I'm really honoured. Thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I can't believe you chose a chicken song. Really? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I love it, Mike. <laughs> you have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my lovely guest, Jim Howick. 
Thank you for your support in listening to this podcast. There are so many to choose from, so we really appreciate the fact that you pick us at all. If you want to know when other episodes are released, then do subscribe and we'll send you each new episode as it becomes available. Do rate and maybe review the show when you have the time and we'd be delighted to know what you think about the podcast and if you have any particular guests you'd like us to try and get on. You can contact us anytime through social media, Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. I'm on there and so is my time capsule and we're very friendly, I promise. The theme tune by Pass the Peas Music is available on Spotify. This was a cast-off production for Acast and it was produced by John Fenton Stevens. So, see you all soon, I hope. You being there means that John and I can keep doing this podcast, which we really love, rather than go back to other things that we may not enjoy quite so much. John, for example, was for a time a busker, which sounds fun, but it can get cold and lonely out there on the streets. And it's risky. John was a one-man band. He had a drum on his back, worked by his left foot, obviously, a cymbal between his knees, a ukulele in his hands, bells on his trousers, the horn in his armpit, and a harmonica propped up in front of his mouth. And, of course, he sang. He was arrested once for illegally busking. The policeman said, come along quietly. Bye. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.